Do you think you would be able to tell if someone was lying to you? Do you think by looking at someone's face, their micro expressions, their tone of voice, even what words they used, you might be able to pick if you were being swindled, being lied to, being manipulated, being groomed. I certainly struggle reading people. It's one of the things that I've been having to deal with my entire life. However, my podcast guest this week is an absolute expert. In fact, he's easily one of the best in the world. Steve Van Apperen is also known as the human lie detector. He has worked with law enforcement all over the world. He trains law enforcement all over the world in the delicate art of interviewing criminals who are trying to convince you that they didn't do it. And let me tell you, if you've done it, Steve's going to find out. It's a fascinating conversation and I can't wait to share it with you. However, podcasts on this platform are free to listen to, but they are not free to make. I need to pay the team to make the show with me, so you're about to hear some ads. There are ad-free versions of this show, and you're more than welcome to find them. I'll tell you about that later in the show. Between now and then, though, here's some ads. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details research shows that when we get a gut feel that something's not right 90 percent of the time we're right the problem is we actually talk ourselves out of it we think oh you know he or she can't be that bad or you know for whatever rationalization process we use if there's something that doesn't feel right, ask the question. But more importantly, and this is the biggest thing, what are the observations that you've made after the question? So are they denying, are they being evasive, omissive, dismissive, sidestepping the issue, all these changes in the PR? Because if I'm interviewing someone, and I don't care if it's on the side or a potential date, I want to know what is it about that question that induced such uh, change in behaviour? But more importantly, why didn't they even answer the question? That is the human lie detector, Steve Van Apperen. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday. Better than yesterday. 
G'day, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg and I'm stoked you could be here. This is a podcast that is here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show will do just that. Make today better than yesterday. How do I do such a thing? It's a lofty goal. Well, by having conversations with people from all walks of life, from all over the world, some of them experts in their field, but every one of those conversations will leave you with the feeling that, you know what, today was better than it was the day before because I think about things a little differently. That is all I'm here to do. Three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, I'm here. And Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. I'm Osho. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a podcaster. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a, a, a hotel gym rehab guy. I'm a electric mobility enthusiast. I'm all about using solar powered units of energy to get me from place to place, whether it be by car or bicycle or motorbike. Uh, I like coffee. I like juice. I like cups of tea in a thermos that I sip late at night at work. I like my wife and my kids. In fact, I love them. And I also really enjoy the TV show Bluey. You can find me, send us your email at gmail.com is where I am. And you can also find me on Instagram. Super easy. It's just Osher Ginsburg on Instagram. Just search Osher and you'll you'll find me. Uh, there are ad-free episodes of this show. If you want to listen to them, I'll tell you about that a little bit later. But let me tell you about my guest today. Steve Van Apperen is also known as the human lie detector. I've had the good fortune to have worked with Steve in my TV work. He has shown up on some of the shows that I work on. And every time he does, I have the most extraordinary conversations with him because he truly is a fascinating reader of humans. I mean, he sees, he's Keanu in the Matrix. He sees through everything and it is incredible. He trains, trains some of the highest level law enforcement on the planet, the LAPD, the FBI, the US Secret Service. He has been involved in hundreds and hundreds of criminal cases, some of the most grisly homicides you can possibly imagine. He has interviewed some of the most heinous criminals on the planet. And he does these things because he has this extraordinary ability to observe the way a person's face moves, how they use words, the tone of voice, the tense of the nouns and verbs that they use when they speak. He has a way of questioning and a way of obtaining a baseline that allows him to quite clearly see if someone done it. It's an incredible conversation. He's understandably an intense cat. You know, his job is to stare down the most gruesome, horrific criminals in our society that do some of the most awful things that we probably prefer not to think about. But that's his job, is to bring justice and hopefully at least peace of mind to the the families of the victims who have been lost. And because of that, I should warn you straight away, this conversation talks about some really heavy stuff. I'm talking about homicide, child homicide, pedophilia, grooming, the grooming of children for abuse, it goes on and on and on. Because you can't have a conversation about manipulation, about lying without kind of going to those places because that ultimately is is where Steve does his most important work. It's interesting speaking to him because I've I got the feeling that he is not unaffected by spending time with uh, some of these people who've committed these crimes. Uh, but still, for someone who has seen what he's seen, heard what he's heard, he manages to carry on and keep doing work because he ultimately is trying to 
bring the families of the victims of these criminals some some peace. And I really got that feeling that that is what drives him. Steve's retired from law enforcement these days. He works as a consultant. He's brought in from time to time uh, to interview particularly tricky subjects. But he does go around in the corporate world teaching the interviewing skills that he has learned, some of them he's developed, to people not only in the security industry, but to people in all kinds of industries, because ultimately to read a person is to get information and to get information is to be able to make a better choice and a better decision. It's a fascinating chat and I was really grateful to have it because particularly the stuff he spoke about with grooming, some of the insidious ways that grooming can happen, not just to children, of adults as well. I think it's worth listening to. And it, it, like I said, it's tough going at times, but I think it's worth listening to. Not to say that the boogeyman's everywhere and every time you pick up the phone or answer a DM from a stranger, that's what's happening. But to know some of the techniques that get used is to be armed against the techniques that get used, which is why I'm grateful to bring you this conversation with Steve Van Apperen. I'm really grateful we finally got the time to do this, mate. I'm stoked that, that we can get a chance to, to sit down and talk where do we where do we find you today, Steve? St Kilda Road, Melbourne. Looking over sunny Melbourne. <laughs> did you did you start growing up in in the growing up part of your life in Melbourne or, or not? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Melbourne born and raised. Um, uh, my father was actually um, uh, the head keeper of Melbourne Zoo, and uh, we lived wow. for a little while there. And sadly, he passed away when I was uh, four. And I lived in South Australia for a while. I was in the police uh, department over there and then come back to Melbourne and joined Victoria Police. I've only seen the zookeeper living at the zoo in storybooks or films, but you, you, you started, you were a toddler and your dad was the head zookeeper and you were at the Melbourne Zoo. Correct. And I still have vivid memories of actually swimming in the hippo pool, um, having lion cubs in the backyard and, um, you know, mum having uh, platypuses in the bath and all sorts of stuff. So there was was quite an interesting upbringing, to be honest. Hippos are the most dangerous animal on the planet, and that's not hyperbole. They really, they kill more people than anything. Well, I'm assuming there was no hippos in the pool (laughs) at the time. Yeah, absolutely not. You know, that can be very violent. But, uh, yeah, no, that was while the um, enclosures were being cleaned and uh, and whatnot. But, yeah, very fond memories. Wow. That is – I haven't been in Melbourne Zoo in, in a long time. In a real, but I, I love taking our, our little boy Wolfie to the zoo. It's so wild. It's just the most wonderful thing to just sit there and just marvel, marvel at nature. But – Losing your dad that early, I mean, you don't know any different, but that must have been must have been pretty tough. As you got older, I'm sure it started to kick in once you kind of got to your teens and you saw the relationships that other guys were having with their dads. Did did, did, did that kind of affect you, do you think? Yeah, look, it did because um, the circumstances were my, my mother was a nurse and she used to work night shift. And um, I remember my older brother, uh, Ian, who was uh, four years older than I am, uh, said to me, go wake up dad. And I went to wake up dad. And uh, I still remember this, even at the age of four, I, I went down to the bedroom, tried to wake him and he didn't wake up. And I went back and told my brother and he said, try again. And I must have gone up and down three or four times. And then I remember walking in, sitting on the bed and then Ian turning on the lights and he was sitting there. Um, and of course, at that age, you have no idea what death is. And uh, I remember Ian saying uh, he's dead. And it was quite 
monotone. And uh, I think he understood what death meant, but I don't think he understood the, you know, the emotional uh, ramifications of it. And uh, the only thing I remember after that is an ambulance out the front of the house. Yeah, that was it. But, you know, it's funny, I, I'm a big golfer. And um, uh, going back about a year ago, a very good friend of mine and uh, his uh, father played golf. And, um, and I just looked at the relationship between the two of them. And, and for, probably for the very first time in my life, I thought, I wonder what it would be like to play golf with yeah. a father that I never knew. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that was yeah. interesting. I, you know, I, I, it, it's funny because everything I've learned about him has been through other people. And ironically, when I was a detective at Broadmeadows, um, I was investigating a burglary and uh, uh, just walked in and started talking to the guy. And the, um, the guy said, oh, you're Bill Van Eppen's son, are you? And I said, yeah. And he used to work with him. Uh, my father, and it was it was, uh, it was almost surreal learning about my own father through someone that I couldn't even remember. So yeah, so I've got about two photos of him. So that's the first time wow. I was introduced to death, and ironically, my career took a path where I'm surrounded in homicides and death. Mate, I, that. Well, I was, look, I'm sorry you went through that. I know you were quite little, but you know, to discover your dad in bed dead that that's that that's hard to do i mean you didn't know any different but as you grew up i'm sure you could have understood what certainly as you would have done your job and seen the effects that that has on other people you would have definitely i'm sure it would have helped you find some empathy towards people who lost parents or, or loved ones when they were quite young yeah absolutely i um i think you know Having, as you know, I've worked on about 81 homicide cases and a couple of serial kill investigations, and um, the media make such a big deal. I know people have this fascination with, uh, you know, murder and intrigue and mystery and all that type of thing. I actually see the other side. I see the pain and the suffering of the victims' families, and yeah. Uh, yeah, a great deal of empathy is required. And, you know, uh, you know, I make no bones about the fact that, and, and I'm, you know, I, I still have nightmares even to this day. Uh, you know, I, I, I average around about four hours sleep a night and I have terrible nightmares. I really do. And and I think everyone, I think stress is a personal issue. I think everyone's got their own coping mechanisms with stress. Um, and I've, I've worked with some really good, strong characters. So these are tough, tough guys, you know, like homicide detectives, robbery, uh, you know, armed robbery and so on. And, you know, that there was no outlet. Uh, you know, I remember when I was in the police and I was, I was 21 and here I was at 21 preparing a body for uh, a viewing because back in those days they, they didn't have public servants that did it, police used to have to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, going to a, a really bad car accident and a young girl was killed and here I was at 21, 22, uh, you know, she was so badly, you know, injured and, uh, from the accident that, you know, trying to cover it. So when the parents come in to do the ID, that uh, they weren't, I mean, you know, obviously it was horrific for them anyway, but to to use empathy is so important, especially when you've lost a loved one or a child, you know, there's, yeah. I could think of nothing worse. But, yeah, I, I think it did help me building empathy and um, in the future. People know you because you have an ability to, to read um, unconscious tells in, in people's faces in terms of voice and choice of words. And that is very clear, like Neo in the Matrix. You can just go, all right, you you think you're not telling me what you're telling me, but I can see you're telling me what you're telling me. And this is this is why I have no friends left. 
<laughs> well, we can talk about that. But when sure. when did you first start to notice? Because my 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 wife has uh, Audrey. She has an astonishing ability to read micro expressions yep. to the point where she'd be like, "What you didn't see that? I'm like I don't know what you're talking about. You didn't see the flash of regret go across her face between the word but and I am." No, I didn't. She goes, no, 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 that person's really sad that they did that. Well, I don't know. But so when did you first start to notice that you could see things that other people couldn't in others' faces? Yeah, it was when I first joined the place and I, I was interviewing somebody and um, my partner said, he said, that guy's lying. He said, I hate liars. And the first thing I thought was, well, you're in the wrong occupation. <laughs> you're going to get lied to every day of the week. Um, but it was it was during an interview and it was really funny because I thought, you know what? Forget about all the micro-expressions, the telltale signs, the body language, the pronouns, the narratives, all that sort of stuff. Usually what trips up a liar is the fact that they're contradicting themselves. So the story didn't add up. Right? So then I thought to myself, you know, and it's interesting because I went through two police departments, detective training school, um, and then I went and trained in adaptive interviewing, which is a, a process used by the FBI. And what I realised was interviewing is your bread and butter. I mean, sometimes you'd be interviewing a, a witness who turns out to be an offender or vice versa. So, you know, the, the first thing is is to be able to identify certain cues and signs and, and behaviours. So, I, you know, I can teach anyone in half an hour how to be a good question asker. But what I teach homicide investigators, investigations, intelligence agencies, government departments, is not to be a question asker, but to be an analyst of human behaviour. So if I ask a question, the question is threatening stimulus that induces changes and the person's evasive, omissive, dismissive, sidesteps the issue, doesn't answer the question. There's hand-to-face masking, concealment, blocking behaviours, uh, paralinguistic changes. Well, then that's important because I think what is it about those changes or about that question that induced those changes? But more importantly, why haven't they answered the question? Yeah, so it, it started, it was an organic process. And then I thought, you know what, I'm not the best interviewer. I thought I was great. But at the end of the day, how do you measure the effectiveness of an interview? I mean, I, I watch you know, a lot of journalists interview people all the time. They'll ask the question. The uh, respondent uh, won't answer the question. They'll go on to the next one. I mean, I was analysing the Prince Andrew uh, interview. And, uh, I mean, look, even the average person could see there was a lot of inconsistencies there. But, I mean, I sat there and I, I, I think I found about 92 significant changes in behaviour during the, the interview. So, yeah, so I just thought, you know what, I want to be, I, like, I was always interested in profiling, uh, but what had happened was the more I learned about profiling, the more interested I'd become in cognitive and behavioural interviewing. I wanted to know why some of the detectives were terrible at reading people or detecting deception and why some were quite good. But more importantly, what is it about some interviewers where people would confess? And, you know, the funny thing is I got back from the States and all of a sudden I had all these people confessing. And when you understand why people confess, I think you've cracked the code. Okay, okay. so I'll ask the obvious question here. <laughs> what makes people want to confess? Is it the, the pressure of holding up the just eternal amounts of spinning plates to maintain the subterfuge and they just don't have enough RAM and they can't think about, I don't have the brain power to find the keyhole in my front door because I'm too busy remembering what I've told everybody? To a small extent. There's been research done. Um, the three main reasons why people confess, number one, believe it or not, they like the interview. Number two, to get it off their chest. Number three, 
they believe that the evidence is so overwhelmingly against them that further resistance may be futile. So think about that for a second. So the first thing I do is I want the person I'm interviewing to like me. I want them to take me into their confidence and I want them to feel comfortable. Secondly, we know this. If I blame somebody for their behaviour, I make it substantially more difficult for them to confess. Because humans, as we are, we are very good at minimising, justifying and rationalising our behaviour, in particular when we've done something wrong. So as an interviewer, when I go in to interview somebody, the first thing I will do is build that rapport and empathy, number one. Even if I don't like the person, point number one, never let that show, especially if I'm interviewing a pedophile or someone like that. It's important because I remember uh, a good uh, colleague of mine, a friend as well, we were interviewing this well-known pedophile here in Melbourne. And my partner says, if you don't tell us what you did to this child, we're going to lock you up, you're going to go to jail, your wife will leave you, uh, you'll lose your job, and no one will want to have anything to do with you. Now, just think about that for uh, one second. He just gave a thousand reasons why not to confess, not one reason why he should or could. So my partner gets up, storms out, good cop, bad cop, and I don't say anything. I'm just writing. And this guy looks at me and he says, after like a real long pause, and silence in an interview is really important, believe it or not, because we're very social creatures. We don't like pregnant pauses in um, you know, conversations or interviews. So anyway, he walks out, he looks at me, and he asks me a very interesting question. And the question was, now bear in mind, we had no evidence. We had no biological trace evidence, no fingerprints, no CCTV. We had nothing. We just had it hearsay. And he said, do you think I did this? My response was, I looked at him, and I said, you know what? I don't really care if you did this. I've only got one question and one question only. He says, what's that? I said, did you mean to hurt her? And he does this, just very, very slight um, a shake of the head in the negative. So now I've got a partial admission. So... It's, it's understand the psychology, understanding the psychology of what makes people do what they do. It can only make me a better interviewer. But also, I'll use behavioural analysis questions. So let's just say I'm interviewing you for, I don't know, a theft. So I'll say, and let's mm -hmm. just say it's $20,000 gone missing from the, I don't know, the boss's office. I'll ask you behavioural analysis questions like the FBI use. It might be, Osha, what do you think should happen to the person who took that money? Now, think about that question for a second. Let's say you are not involved, you didn't take that money, mm. you give me an opinion of what you think should happen. And usually it might be, depending on your upbringing, your, your values, your morals, uh, religious beliefs and so on, you might say give them a second chance or you might say, uh, you know, they should, uh, the, should call the police or what, whatever the, the issue is. Usually what we find is truthful people will say what they really feel. They know they're not going to get into trouble for the actions of someone else if they're not involved. Whereas deceptive people will often come up with a justification, an excuse or some sort of mitigation. So it might be, you know, um, or maybe they didn't mean for it to happen. I've had people say things like that. Um, so how people answer the question, or another one would, tell me, Osha, who, do, who would you eliminate from this investigation? Truthful people will always say, well, I didn't do it. And they'll 
actually vouch for other people they like, know and trust. So they'll say it wouldn't be Paul because Paul wasn't even in the office on the day. It wouldn't be Joe because Joe's not that sort of person. Uh, it wouldn't be Wendy because, you know, Wendy's no, no way would Wendy you know, do anything like that. Now think what's happening there. A truthful person is exonerating or eliminating other people from the investigation. A deceptive person will never do that. You eliminate other people. Who's left in the focus? Myself or yourself. So it's understanding the psychology. You know, it, it, it's more about analysing the response, asking the right questions and looking at how they react to the question. When you're looking at how they react, and this is the thing that fascinates me because you see things that other, well, you see things that are in plain sight. And um, even though you say to me, it's like, no, watch their blink rate. I'm like, I, I'm, all I see is their eyes opening and closing. I can't tell if it's faster or slower. <laughs> what do things like... I don't know, what do things like blink rate or which way our eyes are pointing or, or things like that tell us when we're speaking to another person? Oh, well, the first thing is you need to baseline or benchmark a behaviour and then look for deviations from mm -hmm. that normative behaviour. So let's just say, let me ask you a question. What was the very first job you ever had? I worked for my dad uh, yep. as answering phones in his office on a Saturday. Okay. And what year did you start? 1980, I was 11, five. Okay. Now, if you were to play that video back, your eyes went down, yeah. rotated, then went up to the right. <laughs> now, they did. That, that in itself, <laughs> right, that in itself told me very little. But what it does tell me is this, right? A lie, by definition, is where you willfully mislead somebody knowing that what you're saying is factually incorrect. Now, usually what I do if I'm talking on stage or something, I'll get people out of the audience and I'll ask them a question and I'll actually stop them before they answer the question. And I'll say, um, okay, that just goes to prove that loss of eye contact is not indicative of deception, but more so of neurological right. recall. In fact, research shows the opposite. Research shows a deceptive person will more likely stare you down than look away. It's more about confidence. Right. You, different cultures, people may look down or the rest of it. So that's why it's so important to benchmark and then look for deviations from that normative behaviour. So holistically, we need to look for groups of things. But getting back to eye blink, blink rate, uh, eye fixation, all that type of thing, research shows that, believe it or not, a person's blink rate increases six to eightfold after the delivery of the deception. So it's almost like what will happen is I'll give you the response I know I'm lying to, and I think, well, how is Osher reacting to that? And all of a sudden, like it's almost like reaction and relief. So our body has our autonomic nervous system. So it's sympathetic and parasympathetic. Yeah, so yeah. if we're ever threatened, we go into fight or flight mode. And depending on the circumstances, it, it's interesting in um, when I interview somebody, um, if you haven't baseline that, you're not going to see those changes. But bear in mind, what you said uh, before about Audrey or your uh, wife, Research shows that women have more evaluation centers in their brain than men. That's why they're so much better at reading body language. You know, one of my, my most popular talks on the speaking circuit is why women make better liars and men have no idea. So, and one of the things I talk about is when a woman is interested in a man, she will bombard him with behavioral cues that signify that interest. The problem with men is they have no idea. They don't know what to look for. So women will be putting it all out there. There'll be good frontal alignment. Uh, there'll be you know, a, a touching. There'll be uh, the psychological uh, free space of communication. And men have no, 
does does she like me? Uh, whereas all the cues and signals are there. So that would account for why women are so much better at reading body language than men. In your experience, when it comes to people who are incredibly good liars, is this something that they are deliberately crafting or is it just a set of skills that they have kind of, they just do automatically in order to protect themselves? They're not deliberately doing it. Oh, if I do this or do that, I am going to make them believe this. Or is it just this kind of almost subconscious uh, wriggling out from underneath a truth to create another truth in order to protect themselves? They're so in it, they don't even realise they're doing it. Yeah, look, I'm sure all your listeners would know someone in their past where they've lied, they've lied, they've lied, and their lies are just totally unbelievable. So that could be part of their narcissistic personality. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting because it, there are different levels. I mean, you, you've got psychopaths, uh, you've got uh, sociopaths and all the rest of it. So usually what happens is people will tell you what they want you to know. That's the first thing. So effectively, what I uh, I think is that um, those people that maintain the facade, let's just say, you know, um, somebody's on a dating site or something like that. Well, a lot of the times, and my, my former business partner, I remember once she went out with a guy on a, a dating site, gets back to me, they go out somewhere, wherever, and she, it, she comes back and she says, you know, he said on his side that he was six foot two, he goes to the gym, um, and he was very buffed. That, that were his own words. And when she actually met him, um, he was five foot seven, had a pot belly, and she said, using her words, teeth like a serrated steak knife. So the interesting thing, <laughs> the interesting thing there is people will lie to impress, to get ahead, to um, save face, to maintain the facade. Um, and often, depending on the personality trait, um, they may actually believe their lies. They really do. They, it, it's got to a state. Everyone around them don't, doesn't, uh, but they, 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 and they maintain that facade. But you've got to be mindful too because you're right. Um, often deceptive people will trip themselves up because they're inconsistent in what they've previously said. Um, and you know what? If, if I was to ask you what you did this morning, neurologically through sensory input, and historical events. You'd be able to tell me what you saw, what you heard, what you felt, what you did, conversations that took place. Why? Because you lived through them. So usually, and I'll see this with a lot of cases, but if I'm getting somebody to recall a historical narrative, I'll say, tell me everything you did from the time you woke up to the time you, know, you found the body or whatever. Then what will happen is truthful people will take ownership, whereas Deceptive people will create that distance, disassociation and separation in their language because they can't implicate themselves if they're involved. So they have to do that. They've got no option. What are the differences of the two answers sound like, please? Yeah. So a, a truthful person will give you information, content, structure and detail, but also, most importantly, feelings and emotions. Like they'll, they'll explain how they felt when they found the body, you know, and they may even blame themselves. Or, you know, if, I, if this didn't happen, you know, she would still be here or something like that. Whereas deceptive people do the opposite. Um, let's talk about in Queensland, uh, uh, Jared Baden Clay. Now, I don't know if you remember that case. Uh, he reported his wife went missing um, and he was interviewed. Ch uh, Channel 9 journalist did a doorstop and he's under the carport and he's got a big scratch down the uh, side of his cheek. Anyway... The journalist starts asking him questions, and what he said was, um, I'm really worried about my children. What he didn't say was, I'm really worried about our children. 
Why would you say that? Because trust me, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people who've had a loved one gone missing and they will never, ever talk in singular person past tense until there's any evidence to the contrary. So it's almost like he's already eliminated his wife from his narrative by saying my children. They're still our children. So w- what's happened? What's different? So when I first watched that doorstop, I thought, and I was talking to a homicide detective because I, I consult to a lot of police departments, and I said to this detective, I said, there's no doubt in my mind he's withholding information, sure enough, he got charged, and the, he was actually scratched. And, and I remember the, the excuse he said he'd cut himself shaving. So unless he was shaving with a machete, um, it's hard to believe. What ended up happening to him? He was convicted of a murder and uh, he's in custody. I think uh, 20 year jail sentence. Far out, man. You mentioned earlier, Steve, um, you mentioned about going on dates. And I think, you know, I'd say you're the probably only person who's listening to this or a part of this conversation that's in homicide, in the world of homicide. So (laughs) we're not going to be interviewing, you know, perpetrators. But we're interviewing people that potentially are life partners, you know, whenever we go on a date. Um, Besides the obvious, and I'm back in the day when I was on those swiping dating sites, I have had that experience of like, well, those photos were somebody else from a few years back. Um, When we're having conversations uh, on those, you know, first few minutes or maybe an hour of a coffee date with somebody that we meet online and we're meeting them face-to-face because it's very hard to do all this kind of stuff we're talking about over text. Like, so when we do get face-to-face with someone, what are some things that we can, we can look for? I, I like to break it down into, you know, three main areas and that is verbal, non-verbal, which is body language and paralinguistic. So firstly, with verbal, um, it's how we communicate with words. Um, so obviously that's where we look for inconsistencies in their statement. So if say, for example, I say, during the thing, oh, you know, um, what did you do last night? And say there's all these inconsistencies in the responses like, um, oh, you know, um, well, yeah, like, uh, why is that important? Well, firstly, there's no answer there. Secondly, uh, deceptive people often take the pressure off themselves and put it back on the interviewer who's asking the question. So thirdly, um, I look for a denial as opposed to an objection. So uh, an example would be, Osha, did you take that $20,000? And you say to me, no, no, I didn't. That's a clear-cut, direct, succinct denial using a personal pronoun. Whereas if you say, why would I do that? I'm not the sort of, you're not answering the question. Okay, so most importantly, I know this This is one interviewing 101, is A, whether the person is answering a question. That's without a doubt. Now, believe it or not, I, I, when I wrote my first book, uh, there was a chapter there on intuition. And research shows that when we get a gut feel that something's not right, 90% of the time we're right. The problem is we actually talk ourselves out of it. We think, oh, you know, he or she can't be that bad or, you know, for whatever rationalisation process we use, we, you know, I mean, why would normally smart people invest with somebody like Bernie Madoff uh, promising ridiculous returns and you're a smart person and you know that that's, you know, pie in the sky, but you believe him. Why? And give worse, you're giving him money. So that's the first. So listen to the words, what people say, how they say it, are they taking ownership or creating that distance? Body language, look for a conflict or contradiction between what they're saying and what their body language is, is engaging in. You know, when I was a, a detective, it was amazing how much information I got because the perpetrator themselves couldn't keep their mouth shut, had to tell somebody. Had to let them know. I mean, I did that um, stick up on the Caltech service station. Big knowing themselves. So I've always said, if you're going to be a good crook, don't tell anyone. 
which is pretty hard for a lot of people. The third one is paralinguistic, and that relates to how the message is communicated. So that might be tone, pitch, voice modulation, response latency, ums and ahs, all that type of thing. We know when people lie, it creates cognitive load. And cognitive load takes a lot of processing. I mean, when, if we looked at an MRI, when a person is lying, literally our brain lights up like a Christmas tree because there's so much to process. Whereas if you're just recalling historical events, you're just relying on memory alone, short and long term. So in the dating, ask the direct questions. You know, are you married? Do you have a partner? Are you seeing somebody at the moment? You know, cut the bullshit and just go straight to the main issue. Because right? people skirt around. Are you sure you weren't sitting in that cafe next to me at Venice Beach, mate? Because that you would be amazed if I went uh, and I, I, I did it for a few months, but you would be amazed. I went if I went on five dates, three of these dates were with women who had boyfriends. Yeah. They were just looking for the next vine to swing onto before they let go of the last one. Like, oh no, no, he's on tour with what are you doing? You are in public with someone that's not your boyfriend that you live with. I don't, I don't know what kind of person he is. And I don't want him coming to find me. Thank you very much. Mm. Goodbye. Mm. It was so weird, man. I did not like it one bit. <laughs> yeah, so that did actually become a question I started to ask Steve. If there's something that doesn't feel right, ask the question. But more importantly, and this is the biggest thing, what are the observations that you've made after the question. So are they denying, are they being evasive, omissive, dismissive, sidestepping the issue, all these changes in the PR? Because if I'm interviewing someone, and I don't care if it's a homicide or a potential date, uh, I want to know what is it about that question that induced such uh, change in behaviour. But more importantly, why didn't they even answer the question? And, you know, humans, we, we want to see the best in everyone. But the problem is, is we're very easily influenced. I remember interviewing a psychopath um, and he was and he murdered a, a, a six-year-old girl, sexually assaulted and murdered her. And he just seemed like your typical grandfather. And I remember, I, I will never forget this. I went home that night and I had the biggest, I, I don't get migraines. I don't even think I knew what a migraine was. But that night I got home and I could be honest with you, I thought my head was going to explode because this guy was sitting there. And he was just playing games. It was, he, he actually enjoyed the cat and mouse of it all. And we're talking about uh, the rape and murder of a six-year-old girl. Oh, my God. I don't know how you – how do you even go home after a day like that and then hear bins getting full and go, yeah, it is bin night, and just carry on with regular domestic – how do you even decompress from a day like that, Steve? Firstly, this, everyone's got their own coping mechanism. Um, so – what I do is I'm very good at compartmentalising. Okay, having said that though, um, I would uh, challenge any uh, you know investigator or, or who or, or return service people who you know faced you know, some horrific scenes uh, to I would challenge anyone who say they can just turn off. I, I you know what I think there's a number of things that happen. They either implode, they explode. Um, or they develop coping mechanisms, drinking, alcohol, um, you know, uh, reckless behaviour, you know, drugs, all that type of thing. But, you know, what I do is I, I have escapes, golf, photography, all that type of thing. But uh, when, when this phone rings, it is always bad news, always. So I have oh, to man. cope with it. Uh, yeah, I, and I'm sure you've got all kinds of strategies so you don't go all Pavlovian when that phone rings so you can be as present to the person who needs your help on the other end of the line. You know, you're not, your body doesn't tense up in anticipation. You you probably have a thing that you do and take a breath and center yourself and go, right, someone 
needs help. There's somebody who's lost someone and they need my help and I'm the only person that can give it. I'm sure that helps you, you know, because you are very good at what you do and I'm sure that does give you some sense of, um, I guess, relief, does it? It does. I, look, I had a problem where, going back a, a while ago, I was just being inundated around the world. I, I remember I had one Canadian family and their, their daughter was murdered and um, the, the police had done an investigation and they were pleading uh, you know they had uh, they couldn't afford uh, you know my airfares or anything like that. They, they were pleading, um, and I, I I was going through a stage where I was working ridiculous hours, and I was almost like I, I felt like I was taking the world's problems on. And if I ever said no, I felt so bad about it. And I realised that I can't help people if I'm not right myself. I really can't. And I got to a stage where I thought I was so run down, so so run down. I was um, I did a. a a talk. I was asked to speak in um, uh, Iran, believe it or not, and I was flying from uh, Iran back to Dubai, Dubai to Melbourne. I was so exhausted. Anyway, I'm walking uh, back to my seat, and I, the last words I remember was the captain saying, "You know, we're coming into land. Uh, yeah, please take your seats." The next thing I remember is waking up. There were paramedics around me. The captain of the plane was looking down at me. Uh, there was a couple of flight attendants looking down. I had no idea what had happened, and I knew I was in a lot of pain. But um, they said, can you get on the stretcher? And I got on the stretcher. Uh, I didn't know. But what happened was I was walking down. I just passed out from exhaustion. As I fell, I whacked my ribs on the, uh, the armrest, broke a few ribs. Um, but I'm in the ambulance going back. And the, one of the paramedics says, um, what day of the week is it, Steve? And I said, October, November? I had no idea. And he said, what month of the year is it? I said, Saturday, I think. Where have you just come from? I didn't even know. And that was a real wake-up call for me. Uh, and I thought... Okay, because I remember going to hospital, MRI scans and all that type of thing, because um, I just I'd had cancer twice, and I, I, all of a sudden everything's sort of getting on top of me, and I'm, I'm thinking, Steve, you got to start looking after yourself, because if I can't look after myself, I can't help other people. Taking a moment away from Steve Van Apparent, are you okay? Are you all right? I know we're getting into some heavy stuff here. There's more to come, but I'm just going to take a break here with you to let you know that if this podcast does bring you any value and you want it in any way to help me and us we who make this show, the best thing you can do is to let somebody else know. Tell someone about this show and share it. Use the app you're listening to this on, send it as a text message and go, oh my God, it's the lie detector guy, check it out. And that'll be great. If you'd like to help us in a more meaningful way, uh, leave a review, subscribe, rate the show where you can, and you can support the show on Patreon. There are ad-free versions of the show. There's full video versions of the show. Patreon.com slash Osher is where you can find us. We'll be back in just a shake with the rest of my conversation with Steve Van Apparent. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We've worked together a few times on the show and on, on you know, the various Bachelor things, and it's always fascinating watching the way you work. And you have spoken to me, and you mentioned it earlier, that the ability to do what you do so very, very well has made it hard for people to be close to you. That must be tough. Yeah, look, I, I remember my wife would come to a, a speaking presentation and uh, people would often ask her, you know, how do you deal with the fact that your husband is a human lie detector? <laughs> and I think, look, here's the thing. I mean, believe me, I'll switch off. I, you know, there's absolutely no benefit in me going into a, a social environment or social context, challenging every time I hear somebody lying. I, I remember I was in New Jersey. I was doing work for CNN and I was in New Jersey and uh, I was invited to a party. Anyway, what happened was uh, there's about 30, 40 people there. And someone says, oh, you know, this is Steve Van Apperen, the human lie detector. You can tell when you're lying. And that. So this woman who, incidentally, her husband was there with her, said, okay, I want you to test me. I had an affair. Am I telling the truth or not? Now, just think about that for a second. If I start asking her questions about that, and let's just say um, she has, and it looks like to me she's lying, and I tell her why I believe she's lying. Think of the the, the um, collateral damage that could do, right? But if I avoid it and just for the uh, sake of maintaining peace and harmony in that environment, I say, oh, no, no, it's fine. Then he's gonna, they're going to say, well, he, he's useless. He doesn't know what he's doing. What benefit or value can come uh, in a social context where you're constantly challenging people about whether they're telling the truth or lying? I don't see any. Having said that, if I'm interviewing you for a homicide, I will peel you layer by layer. But I'll do it very with, with laser precision, and um, you won't know which way to go. I will I will slowly pull every one of your alibis or stories apart. I don't care how well prepared someone is. You cannot possibly pre-anticipate every question I'm likely to ask you. I am so grateful that you can do that because that's a skill set that is is I'm surely a lot a lot of people really really need and you said you, you find you can switch off when you're in a social situation you mentioned it earlier watching that that interview with the member of the monarchy coming into an election year uh, you said before people avoiding the question do you just want to f- throw the remote through the TV when Lee Sale says okay so tell us about your energy policy and they go our energy policy well as far as refugees are concerned blah 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 you know, it's like, come on. It must make you so frustrated. It frustrates me just as much as everyone else out there. Um, and that's a typical diversionary tactic uh, where, you know, the question's too hard, I don't like, and then all of a sudden, and in the media, as you know, you know they're always looking for short grabs, you know, make America great again, all those sort of things. You know, when people start challenging their policy, when start, well, how are you going to do it? Where are you going to find the funding? I, I often think there's no such thing as a bad interviewee, but there's definitely such a thing as a bad interviewer. Why? Because they don't ask the right questions. If, you know, and, and I'm going to relate back to a homicide case. I remember um, Richard Carlton from 60 Minutes contacted me a few years ago and he said, look, Steve, we would like you to do an interview and a polygraph on a person by the name of Greg Domasavich. Now, for your listeners, Greg Domasavich was charged with the murder of Jaden Lesky in Moi around about 20 years ago now. Anyway, at that stage, 
Jaden had not been found. What had happened was uh, Thomas Savage had said that he'd left the house, uh, left Jaden in the house, a young boy, and come back and there was a pig's head in the front of the garden, the window was cracked, um, but um, no Jaden. So they said, can you ask him in an a, a interview on Polygraph Test whether or not he knows for certain where Jaden's body is? And I said, that, that's a terrible question. And he said, why? Surely if he killed him, he'd know where the body is. And I said, not necessarily. What if he had an accomplice and the accomplice disposed of the body? What if he threw the body off the bridge and it's 20 kilometres down the river? He may legitimately not know where the body is. That doesn't mean he wasn't involved in the murder. So in any interview, if the questions are not clear and concise, it will allow a deceptive person in the room to wriggle through. Another example, more recently, I was asked uh, by the Homicide Squad to, to conduct an uh, interview and a test. And the, the short version was they found the deceased in a dam. But when I read the forensic pathologist's autopsy, they could not establish the cause of death. So one of the investigators said, Steve, can you ask, we've got a, a prime suspect, a main person of interest, uh, can you ask him if he strangled the victim? I said, oh, that's not a good question. He just said, why? Uh, he'd know if he strangled him. I said, actually, that's not the issue. The autopsy couldn't establish a cause of death. So what if he held him underwater and he drowned? And I ask him in a test, did you strangle the victim? Technically, he's not lying. He'll pass that test, even though he's involved. So the, the correct question would be, were you involved in any way in the murder of or the death of? So in and get back to um, the interviews of politicians, what I see is sometimes a question will be asked, the, uh, the respondent or the interviewee won't answer, and then they'll go on to the next question. Well, what's the point of asking the question in the first place? So I would like to see more journalists actually go back and ask the direct questions. I would like to see more journalists go to the Steve Van Apperen School of <laughs> holding people to account. <laughs> Your Walkley Award is waiting for you. Just spend some time with Steve. Just, just a, I'm telling you. Just a funny point on that. I, I won't mention the network, but years ago I was contacted by a journalist and who'd actually been to one of my um, uh, training courses, and uh, he said, look, I'm trying to get the hierarchy to get you to run the training course for um, our news reporters. I said, sure. And anyway, he rings me back. So I sent him all the information. He rings me back quite despondent. He said, oh, look, you know, the head of uh, news said, look, um, this guy's not a journalist. What would he know about interviewing? <laughs> Amazing. Oh, Steve. Well, I'm, I'm grateful, Steve, that you're not keeping this stuff to yourself. I'm grateful that not only have you written books about it, but you also teach people. By spreading this information and letting other people learn how to do what you do, what are you, what are you trying to achieve? Well, I think I, I, the reason I joined the police initially was because I don't like injustice. I don't like seeing people ripped off or, you know, hurt or getting away with things that they shouldn't. So I think it was, you know, it was, believe it or not, it was quite altruistic. It was really funny because I remember when the very first day I joined at the academy, they're going around the room and they said to people, why did you join and all the rest of it? And I'm listening to all these answers. People said, oh, you know, I, I, I want to help the community and all the rest of it. And I thought, cut the bullshit. You're already in there. Anyway, it gets to me and one the instructor said, Steve, why did you join? I said to me, girls. And everyone just cracked up laughing. Um, but the point was having the knowledge in, in uh, being able to decipher people who are bad or good or people who are deliberately intentionally misleading you is a powerful tool that uh, can save a lot of heartache. Uh, you know, what I see, especially in relationships, you know, all the signs are there, all the cues are there. You know, I remember interviewing, um, and I felt terribly sorry for. Her. I remember 
uh, speaking to a woman and her husband, quite a senior person in the community, had, I think it was about 100 gigabytes of child pornography on his um, computer. And yet his wife had absolutely no idea. So, you know, I think what is what can be obtained, uh, I mean, I think, you know, people can um, use it to protect themselves. Mate, I'm so fascinated by the work you do and I'm, I'm so grateful with how generous you've been speaking uh, about your experience and, and what you've learned and I'm really grateful that you shared that with us, mate. Despite how grim it is to talk about the stuff that we talk about today, it's important to understand that it does happen in our community. But I'm grateful that there's many people like you who work very, very hard to to help uh, people who are affected by things like this. And um, I think it's really important to remember that for all of us, you know. Yeah, I think um, life is short. You know, um, live live your life, enjoy your life. Don't let don't sweat all the small stuff because at the end of the day, is life and death and everything in between. So enjoy it. That was Steve Van Apren, the human lie detector. Oh, like I said, it was tough going at times there, but it's important to hear that kind of stuff. But also be realistic about it. You know, it's not necessarily always going to be an unknown text message or you know a, a phone call from someone that leads you to be swindled or to be manipulated or, or, or groomed, heaven forbid. It could be someone close to you that you don't realise. And I'm not to say that you should be jumping at spiders, but as I said earlier, you know, it's important to know techniques that can be used by people who have ill will and are trying to manipulate others for their own gain. They can be aware of it and just go, actually, no, thank you. I'll be just fine. While your trapezoidal marketing scheme sounds very different to uh, Pyramid, goodness no, uh, I'll be fine over here, uh, not involving myself in that, for example. Boy, stoked to get him on. Interesting cat, really interesting cat, loves a good game of golf. I can't imagine what life's like for him, just being able to listen to people when he asked them how their day was and go, yeah, no, it isn't. <laughs> but that's Steve, man. I'm lucky that I've got a chance to work with him for a bit. He's always a fascinating dude to speak to. And I'm glad I could share that with you. Thanks to everyone that helped me make the show today. Andy Ma, who cut it all up. Bree Steele on research and support. Toe Hider, who makes all the music. And Rachel Barrett, my executive producer of everything. I'll be back here on Wednesday uh, for another, with another quick version of the show. Better make it quick. I think we're speaking with Amanda Keller on Wednesday, which is going to be sick. Hey, have a great week. Good luck whatever you're doing today and tomorrow and I'll see you Wednesday until we speak then sleep well and dream of beautiful things even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks Italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.